Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. And here we are every Saturday, 12 noon without fail, to defend and promote public education. We've got a fairly full program for you this afternoon. As we promised last week, Jeff is back to tell us more about the Montessori story. And uh, we have other information that we've been garnering from the conversation and other uh, interesting pieces of the media. First of all, our press release 946. There's a question as to whether or not public education is in decline. It has certainly been under pressure, but is it in decline? And are we going to lose it? We've lost uh, ownership of our electricity, of our energy. We've lost ownership of a lot of our transport systems and even some of our roads. But the amazing thing is that billions of dollars to private enterprise later, we still have our public education system because the children and the parents and the teachers have been prepared to fight for it. But um, the teachers are under tremendous pressure, particularly in New South Wales, uh, with the performance pay idea taking root. And uh, Jeff is going to uh, read a very interesting article. No wonder no one wants to be a teacher. Uh, Peter has got information on the religious discrimination uh, bill, which didn't get through, of course, and the research which indicates that Australians are rejecting discrimination that's based on religious belief. Uh, and we've got our great state school. And uh, Maddie's here for that. But let's get the show on the road. Press release 946. Over to Oliver and Kim. Thank you, Jean. The problems confronting public education in Australia are at the present time many, but the doomsayers are in part right and in part mistaken. Dogs note that although succeeding governments have done everything they could to undermine our public education systems and our teachers are struggling, they are still educating the vast majority, 66% of our children. And this despite the fact that so many of our services, electricity, gas, transport, and even quarantine in times of plague have been privatized. Dogs believe that the constant undermining of public education is in large part the result of public funding of the opposing denominational system, which separates children on the basis of class, creed, and color, and costs the taxpayers more than $20 billion per year. But since the 1980s, there is another ideology besides religious discrimination in the mix. This is the neoliberal ideology, which justifies so much the selfish greed of Australian oligarchs, oligarchs, corporations, and representatives of wealthy or insecure parents that have dominated the corridors of power, creating glaring educational and social inequalities in their wake. John Frew served for 10 years as a foundation principal of a New South Wales secondary school for students with conduct disorder and oppositional disturbance, and is a principal of the Frew Consultants Group. He has written the following very interesting article, which is published on the Save Our Schools website, his view of the situation in New South Wales, where the public school teachers are refusing to work under the principles of neoliberalism. This is what he has to say, and Kimberly will read it out for us. Thanks, Oliver. The New South Wales Education Minister's idea that the offer of an increase in pay would solve the complete systems failure of New South Wales Public Schools Education Department reveals their inability to grasp even the fundamental problems facing our schools. The inadequacies that exist have reached crisis point. There are many obvious explanations of what is wrong, primarily the insufficient funding which Trevor Cobalt from the Save Our Schools Public Schools Advocacy Group persistently identifies. Another evident problem is the exhausting non-teaching duties and administrative workload that has grown in recent years. It would seem if the political will existed 
these problems could be easily solved. However, the contemporary education bureaucracy is underpinned by the faulty belief system that is the cornerstone of all public services, the dependence on the principles of neoliberalism. The erosion of the prevailing system began back in the swinging 60s when Western society made a valiant attempt to break the repressive shackles of conservatism and the church. This contest between the policies of the establishment and this desire for freedom fueled the intense coverage of the war in Vietnam. The emerging youth culture that questioned the actions of the existing authority led to a decade of social upheaval. The rearguard actions of the establishment, desperate to keep their hold on their society, culminated in the political assassination of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King. People, especially the youth, wanted to take back their power and the obvious enemy was the state and big brother. The focus for change shifted to the individual taking personal responsibility. In a time when the Cold War had divided the Western world into two camps, this notion of individual responsibilities and choice was embraced as the antidote by the West and the antithesis of the Soviet bloc. What followed was an enthusiastic adoption of an economic paradigm referred to as neoliberalism. This model had emerged in the 1930s following the Great Depression when liberal scholars adopted this non-interventionist approach to the economy as a safeguard against the social move to centralisation. Their ideas centred around the need for competitive marketplaces instead of the state controlling commerce. Neoliberalism remained little more than an economic theory until the 60s when the urge to individualism was enthusiastically wedded to this economic model. The protagonists of this time who promoted this marriage of the power of the individual and the free market were that loving couple Reagan and Thatcher. As Thatcher pointed out, her goal was to change Britain from a dependent to a self-reliant society from a give it to me to a do-it-yourself nation, a get up and go instead of a sit back and wait for it, Britain. The responsibility for success was determinately connected to the effort of the individual. The belief in individualism became embedded in media and popular culture, producing two supporting philosophies. The first, popularised in the best-selling book published towards the start of the 1960s, was Michael Young's The Rise of Meritocracy. This work reinforced the ideas of individuality that could be traced back to the teachings of Confucius and Plato in his book The Republic. If you adopt the values of meritocracy, then it not only is the individual's responsibility to care for themselves, but to succeed, you must earn that success. The second assumption that supports neoliberalism is the concept of grit. If you accept the meritocracy premise, you are rewarded on merit, then the message that determination and passion for long-term goals was a better predictor of success than intelligence must also follow. Together, the philosophies of meritocracy and grit determined that any failure was because the individual just didn't deserve to succeed. There is an assumption made that would make this reliance on the individual a successful model, and that is the concept of equity. That is, every member of society has the same abilities and opportunities. This unintelligent belief is embedded in the US Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-edison, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Therefore, the inference that appeals to those in power is that if the individual fails, it is their fault. What has become clear since the adoption of this approach to all aspects of social and economic management is that, in aggregate terms, things have become a great deal better. The growth of the economy has been spectacular. However, the returns from this burgeoning economy have not been shared equally. The emergence of a new class of extremely successful individuals, I use success in this context to mean wealth, it is difficult for these successful individuals not to support the concept of neoliberalism. Their success infers that they have deserved it, that they are meritorious and gritty, that with this wealth comes power and they use this power to perpetuate this approach to governance. Returning to education, parallel with the rise in neoliberalism has been the continual renewal of education based on the practices all underpinned by the rationalist approach. Successive reforms have been imposed on the schools and individual teachers, all of which demand economic efficiency, the idea that we can get more for our dollars if our staff work harder, and that if the teachers do work harder, they will be rewarded. Of course, this concept continually re-emerges with nauseating regularity in the hoary old performances perfect payments mantra being repetitively trotted out by governments. A cursory examination of the reforms made in New South Wales reveals a sequence of interventions designed to make teachers better. At first, the education bureaucrats introduced productive pedagogy, make the lessons more efficient. 
then teachers were taught increase their capacity, that is, train them to do more. These were followed by the magical feature of efficiency goal setting presented under the guise of personal performance profiles where each teacher had to single out four areas where they identified their goals that would track their improvement. Of course, their efforts would be monitored. Schools were also targeted for improvement with external teams of support staff to scrutinise their performance. And in true competitive spirit, these results were published so parents could reward those schools who played the game. These reforms did little to break the continuous slide into the prevailing chaos, which is the current situation in New South Wales schools. Along with the direct action of management, there has been some recognition by the department on the well-being of the staff. And it is interesting that even associations that represent teachers have adopted this mantra by focusing their supporting activities both on improving staff capacity and looking after their well-being. A healthy teacher is a productive teacher. There is plenty of advice on how to improve teacher well-being. Acton and Glasgow present an excellent thesis synthesis of these theories in the Australian Journal of Teaching Education. They define it as an individual sense of personal professional fulfillment, satisfaction, purposefulness and happiness constructed in a collaborative process with colleagues and students. They contend that for teachers to be supported, there is value in their inclusion in the decisions that influence their work. This inclusion will allow them to better negotiate the systems that are imposed on them. They suggest the following concepts that support teachers' well-being. One, reconnect your purpose. Two, adopt a growth mindset. Three, focus on kindness and gratitude. Four, create clear boundaries between home and school. Five, set up effective debriefing and mentoring structures. Six, establish good sleeping habits. Seven, build up your emotional resilience. And eight, keep focus on your goals. Even a cursory examination of these tips illustrates the fundamental flaw in this approach. That is, it's the teacher's responsibility to make things better. Acton and Glasgow almost get to the same conclusion as I have when they assert, and I paraphrase, that the possibilities for supporting teacher well-being are mediated by neoliberal policy considerations. Every piece of advice offered on this list requires the teacher to take action. That is, all change must be in the teacher's approach to their work. The system is at breaking point. Vacant positions are not being filled, graduates are turning away from education as a career, and teachers are leaving in record numbers. There is a real crisis, but the impediment to introducing sensible changes remains locked in the philosophy of neoliberalism, and that is, if we can deal with the efficiency and the well-being of the existing staff, the problem will go away. After the decades of efficiency improvement and interventions to improve well-being, it is blatantly obvious that neoliberal approaches to education have been an abject failure. Until the government takes a critical look at how they are supporting schools, nothing will change. Back to you, Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Um, teachers are responsible for anything that goes wrong when, in fact, they're not being paid enough, they're not being recognised for their work, and they are being overloaded with administrative responsibilities which should go back to the central administration. Um, and it's been uh, since the 1980s that they have undermined the central administrations of our public systems and put more and more and more obligations on our teachers. Um, I find that a very interesting article indeed. But um, the teachers aren't putting up with it, are they? They're walking away. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we're going to come back uh, to talk a little bit more about our teachers with Maddie and Sol. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not... You know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. 
We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. We are still listening to the dogs program and we're still talking about teachers and performance pay. Uh, the conversation, uh, which is run, it's a, it's a website uh, with very interesting articles that's run by a large number of uh, tertiary institutions throughout Australia, has got a very interesting article by Jessica Holloway, Rafan Daliri Nagamatua, and Sarah Langman. Uh, Performance pay for New South Wales teachers will make the crisis worse. And, of course, this gives you some understanding of why teachers in both the public and private sector in New South Wales have been on strike. But Maddie and Sorrel are going to tell us a bit more about this article. Over to you, Maddie. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, now is not the time to take an already precarious workforce and impose policies we know have had damaging effects elsewhere. Without fail, every time a politician is tasked with reforming education, the issue of performance-based pay for teachers is put on the table. It's odd, really, that such a controversial idea can keep making the rounds with such enthusiasm from government leaders. But that's exactly what the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, has announced as part of his platform to reform education. The policy is being framed as innovative and designed to modernise the education system. The proposal has drawn swift criticism. The two largest teachers unions in the state, the New South Wales Teachers Federation and the Independent Education Union of Australia, unanimously voted to strike for 24 hours on the 30th of June in the dispute about pay and staff shortages. It's the first time members of the two unions will strike together. And it's unclear whether the Premier anticipated this sort of response, but a brief look at how similar proposals have been received in the past suggests it isn't very surprising. The proposal ignores everything we've learned about why teachers are leaving the profession. We know they are leaving because of unbearable workloads, low morale and stagnant pay. Performance pay will not resolve the fundamental problems that lead to teachers leaving. It does risk making matters worse. What's the evidence on performance pay? What we do know about similar efforts to introduce performance pay for teachers is that there is a lot of international evidence to draw upon. Unfortunately, the evidence paints a grim view of what performance pay might look like in the Australian context. To begin, what is performance pay? And why do government leaders keep proposing it as a solution for school reform? Performance-based pay is built on a simple premise. Good teachers should be financially rewarded for excellent teaching. The idea is that teachers will be motivated to try harder, perform better and produce better outcomes. This might sound like a great idea. Don't we want good teachers to be compensated for their exceptional performance? According to decades of research, however, there are many problems with this premise. First of all, we know that the best teaching occurs when teachers are able to collaborate, share and learn from one another. This only happens when teachers have the time, but also the motivation to work together. Performance pay, on the other hand, is based on a model of competition. Only the best will receive financial rewards, while others will miss out. Creating this kind of competitive environment has been detrimental to collegiality, trust and morale among teachers. At a time when teachers are already finding their workloads unbearable, adding a layer of competition is the last thing that will help keep them in the classroom. It requires a level playing field, which doesn't exist. Sorrel, do you want to tell us more about that? I'd love to, Maddie. Thank you. So one area that most performance pay research is clear about is that such policies require very specific conditions to be effective. At the same time, this research shows that achieving perfect conditions is nearly impossible. 
The only way to make performance pay fair is to create a perfectly level playing field for all teachers. Of course, this is unrealistic. Classrooms are messy, complex environments. Students have varied backgrounds, different levels of privilege and diverse needs. Teachers are expected to teach all students, regardless of the circumstances. However, research has shown us time and again that different levels of advantage have a significant influence on outcomes. When teachers teach in schools or classrooms with high concentrations of disadvantage, it is often harder for them to demonstrate achievement growth. On the flip side, experts also warn of ceiling effects. When teachers teach high concentrations of high-performing students, they also struggle to demonstrate learning growth. In one notorious case in the US, a teacher lost out on performance pay because he taught high-performing students. His students had already performed so well that this left little room for growth in achievement. This teacher went backwards because students didn't achieve their predicted scores, some better than perfect under the state's value-added model. Decades of work haven't solved these problems. These are just some of the issues that have to be resolved before performance pay can be considered a viable option. School systems around the world have been trying to do so for decades with limited success. What we have learned from these attempts is that performance pay is based on narrow measures of quality that inevitably lead to poor teaching practice. Not only is the policy outdated and ineffective, but international evidence shows performance pay damages teacher morale and collegiality. At a time when teachers are leaving the profession in droves, this policy threatens to make current conditions even worse. Now is not the time to take an already precarious workforce and impose policies we know have had damaging effects elsewhere. Well, thank you very much. That's very interesting, isn't it? It reminds me of the 19th century payment by results system. There's never a new, a new idea under the sun with these politicians. And of course, it's always the teachers that are, are on the receiving end and are being held responsible uh, for the fact that the uh, politicians just have not, and the administrators have not given them enough support and funding. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to some more interesting uh, work. Uh, we've got Jeff, who's going to tell us why no one wants to be a teacher these days. There's kind of a lot of, a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving. Um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that, that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Well, you're still listening to the dogs, I hope. And uh, if you're a teacher, I hope you're interested in the program we're producing today. Uh, we do, of course, have some wonderful teachers in our system. But at the moment, a lot of them are exhausted and very tired and wanting to take a long, long holiday. And I know a few of them. They've resigned and they're off around Australia with their children. They so much enjoyed staying at home and uh, teaching their own children that they've decided to um, take the plunge uh, out of the classroom. And this is a tragedy for our systems. It's a tragedy for our children. We should uh, coddle our teachers a lot more 
than we are doing. Uh, but uh, over to you, Jeff. No wonder no one wants to be a teacher these days. Yeah, that's right, Jean. Uh, thank you. This article is from The Conversation by, and it's by Nicole Moffler, who's an Associate Professor of Education at the University of Sydney. And it's called, as you say, no, one wants, no Wonder No One Wants to Be a Teacher. A world first study looks at 65,000 news articles about Australian teachers. And it goes, remember when former Morrison government minister Stuart Robb lashed out at dud teachers? In March, the then acting minister said the bottom 10% of teachers can't read or write and blame them for declining academic results. This is much more than just a sensational headline or politician trying to get attention. My research argues the way teachers are talked about in the media has a flow on effect to how people feel about becoming a teacher and how current teachers see their place in the community. So when we talk about the shortage of teachers in Australia, we also need to look at media, media coverage of teachers in Australia. My new book examines how teachers have been represented in the print media for the past 25 years. When you look at the harsh criticism and blame placed on teachers, it's no wonder we are not attracting enough new people to the profession and struggling to retain the ones we have. In a world first study, I explored, explored how school teachers have been portrayed in the Australian print media from 1996 to 2020. I looked at more than 65,000 media articles from all 12 national and capital city daily newspapers, including all articles that mentioned teacher and or teachers three times or more. With an average of 50 articles per week for 25 years and a total word count of more than 43 million, my analysis is one of the largest of its kind. The study looked at more than 43 million words written about teachers over 25 years. While a lot has been written about teachers in the media over the years, this is the first study to systematic, systematically analyse such large numbers of articles representing such a complete collection of stories about teachers in newspapers published over such a long time. So what did I find? A lot. But here are three key findings that are critical when it comes to the way we think and talk about teachers and their work. We are fixated on teacher quality. First, my research charts the rise and rise of attention to teacher quality, especially between 2006 and 2019. This period covers the start of the Rudd-Gillard education revolution, which reframed education in Australia and was all about quality. It ends with the start of COVID, when reporting on teachers and education temporarily concentrated on homeschooling. My analysis found the focus on quality was much more, far more on teachers than, say, teaching approaches, schools, schooling, education systems, or anything else. Uh, she gives a graph with the three most common uses of quality. Why is this an issue? It puts an emphasis on the purported deficiencies of individual teachers rather than on the collective capacity to improve teaching. It detracts from system quality, the systemic problems within our education system. Teacher quality is a way for politicians to blame put the blame elsewhere when they should be committing to addressing the root cause of these problems, inadequate and inequitable funding, excessive teacher workload, unreasonable administrative loads, or teachers being required to work out of their field of expertise. Teachers' work is made out to be simple. It's not. The second key thing I found is that media reporting on teachers consistently talks about their work as simple and common sense, as though all decisions made by teachers are between two options, the right one and the wrong one. The phrase Teachers should appears 2,300 times in my database. Examples include teachers should be paid according to how their students succeed. Teachers should not adopt cookie cutter approach to learning. Teachers should arrive in classes prepared. Teachers should not be spending time organizing sausage sizzles. Research conducted in the 1990s and still widely referred to by scholars found teachers make roughly 1,500 decisions in the course of every school day. Recent research, including some I'm currently doing with colleagues, suggests teachers' work has greatly intensified and accelerated over the last 30 years. So it's likely 1,500 decisions per school day is now a very conservative estimate. These decisions include everything from what texts we will focus on in English next term to, what sh uh, to should I ditch what I'd planned for this lesson so we can keep having this conversation because the students are absorbed by it. Research in the 1990s found teachers made about 1,500 decisions a day. Uh, it's likely to be more now. Yeah, so she's already said that. It also includes social decisions such as, do I intervene right now and potentially escalate what's going on in the back of the classroom or just keep a close eye on it for now? Every single one of those decisions is complex. And yet in media coverage, claims of what all teachers or every teacher can, should or could 
do come thick and fast. Teaching is relentlessly difficult. And while not everyone needs to understand that, in the same way not everyone needs to understand exactly how to conduct brain surgery, we do need to pay some respect to the 300,000 or so Australian teachers who navigate the profession every day. Just because the complexity may not have been evident to us in our 13 years as school students, doesn't mean it wasn't there. Finally, I found stories about teachers who were, uh, were disproportionately negative in their representations. I did find good news stories in my research, but they were outnumbered by articles that focused on how teachers collectively and individually don't measure up. This included the linking of crises to poor quality teachers. Take, for example, former Education Minister Christopher Pine's comment that uh, the number one issue in terms of the outcomes for students is teacher quality. In fact, the OECD said eight out of 10 reasons why a student does well in Australia or badly in the classroom to which they are allocated. In other words, the teacher is to whom, the teacher to whom they are allocated. In other words, teacher bashing is the norm when it comes to stories about teachers in the Australian news media. As we consider what to do to improve teacher numbers in Australia, we need to think about the way we talk about teaching and teachers in the media. If all people hear is that teachers are to blame for poor standards, then they and they should be finding the demanding complex jobs easy, this is hardly likely to encourage people into the profession, nor does it give those already there the support and respect they need to stay. Back to you, Jean. Very interesting, isn't it? Uh, well, I think that we should, uh, on the dogs, thank all of our teachers who are giving our children uh, excellent uh, lessons every day. Uh, they don't need performance pay. They need more pay. They need to be paid, all of them, for what they are worth and uh, they are without price, as any parent will tell you when their little child comes home happily from school. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break. And then we've got, uh, we'll go back to the religious question. Uh, because the dogs are also interested in separation of religion from the state. And there is, with the private sector, always the underlying question of should those schools which are privately and publicly funded, above all publicly funded, have the right to discriminate on religious grounds or on any grounds whatever against children, students or teachers cleaners or any other employees. But we'll have a bit of a break and then we come back to Peter. Mantengamos la fuerza en la comunidad. Keep community strong. El time ya llegó. Time to donate. 3CR Radio Thumb 2022. El time ya llegó. Time to donate. 3CR Radio Thumb 2022. Understand all that? It's Radio Don 2022. It's time to donate. To do this, go to www.3cr.org.au and pledge your donation. We love you. We need you. Keep the community strong. You're listening to the Dogs Program, and here we've got Peter who's going to read us a very interesting article, Australians Reject Discrimination That's Based on Religious Belief. It's new research, very interesting, very important research, which uh, Peter will tell you about. Okay, thank, thank you, Jean. Uh, yes, it's entitled Australians Reject Discrimination That Is Based on Religious Belief, New Research. And this has been conducted by uh, uh, three people Kay Gleeson, Robert Ross, and Sean Wilson. And the context of this research, I should just say, it's uh, been performed by the Australian Cooperative Election Survey, uh, ACES, that is a collaborative project involving Australian universities uh, that used UGov panel data and methodologies to study the 2022 federal election. 
The survey was fielded online in, in May 2022, so not long ago, just after the election, uh, with an overall sample of um, uh, almost 6,000 voters uh, and uh, 1,000 voters for the religious module. Uh, data were weighted according to reflect the population uh, and the methodology. So that's, that's the context of this. Anyway, the, the findings are summarised as follows, and I, I, I read. Uh, Since the change of government at the May election, the fate of the contentious religious discrimination legislation remains unclear. There is bipartisan consensus that the Commonwealth legislation should protect individuals of different faiths from discrimination in the workplace and elsewhere. But Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has not committed to a timeline to enact any new legislation. His government has stepped away from controversial areas of this policy promoted under the Morrison government that focused on religious freedoms. The new government may be closer to the public mood. The results of the 2022 Australian Cooperative Elections Study, ACES, confirm that voters do not see religious discrimination as a significant issue. Only a minority, that is 27%, agree that Australians who hold religious beliefs face a lot of discrimination. A majority either disagree, 31%, or are neutral, 42%, on that proposition. Clear majorities oppose protections of, re of religious freedom that is seen as discriminating against LBGBTQ individuals. Much of this controversy has centred on schools. Since the advent of anti-discrimination laws in the mid-1970s, religious schools have benefited from exemptions, allowing them to refuse to employ staff or accept students based on their sexuality or gender identity, if this is contrary to the ethos of the school. Despite these exemptions, Campaigns to strengthen religious freedoms intensified following marriage equality legislation in 2017. The debate was further inflamed by the sacking of rugby player Israel Folau for posting social media comments about gay people and others in line with his Christian faith back in 2019. In response, the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison drafted religious freedoms bills in 2019 and 2021. The latter was based on an election promise to override state and territory laws to protect statements of belief made by individuals in accordance with doctrines, tenets, beliefs, or teachings of their religion. The bill was dramatically shelved in February 2022. Five moderate liberal MPs crossed the floor in the House of Representatives. They objected to the bill's protections for potentially anti-LGBTQ commentary without any accompanying commitment to protect transgender children from exclusion from schools. The bill was doomed to fail in the Senate for the same reason. The conservative Australian Christian lobby in turn targeted moderate liberals in the election campaign, portraying them as opponents of religious protection. Our new data reinforce the extent of voter resistance to aspects of religious freedom agenda that lead, led up to the election. The ACS asked voters a series of questions about religious schools and conditions for staff and students. A clear majority, that is 67%, disagreed that religious schools should be able to refuse to employ staff based on their sexual orientation. Only 15% agreed. Almost identical results were reported for the statement about refusing to employ staff because of their transgender identity. 65% disagreed, 16% agreed. Voters also disagreed by very similar margins that religious schools should be able to exclude students based on their sexual orientation or exclude students based on their transgender identity. There were predictable democratic 
differences in all four statements. That's four statements of uh, supposed discrimination. Women consistently expressed disagreement in the 74% to 79% range. Men also disagreed, but with smaller majorities, 56 to 59 range. Younger voters were almost in, were most inclined to express disagreement, while the majority of voters aged 65 and over also registered disagreement, with slightly less percentages. These findings suggest that Morrison misjudged the electoral mood. He defended the Liberal candidate for Warringah, Catherine Deves, whose views on sports and transgender identity generated backlash against the coalition. If the coalition was looking to win Conservatives in outer metro electorates, its effort did not succeed on election night. Indeed, 39% of respondents to the ACES agreed that Australian politics is too focused on the rights of religious people. Only 21% disagreed with the statement, 40% agreed or expressed a neutral view. US-style religious politics appear to have limited appeal in a country with a growing distance from organised religion. Last month's census results showed 39% of Australians do not identify as religious. Responding to a similar question in ACES, 49% identified as non-religious. At the same time, Australians appear on board with sexual and gender diversity. They reject protections for religious organisations to exclude people from employment and schooling on these bases. No doubt the Albanese government will be weighing this reality as it considers its next steps in addressing religious discrimination law. Very interesting indeed. But uh, of course, the position of the docs is that in public schools, none of these questions arise because public schools are open to everybody and anybody. And uh, the question of discrimination is just not there. And that is why we believe that the uh, private schools, the religious schools, if they want to exist, should pay for themselves. They should put their money where their mouth is, especially if they feel that they themselves are being discriminated against. But um, we're now going to have a break and we're going to come back to have Jeff telling us a bit more about the Montessori story. Teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world, and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're still listening to The Dogs program and uh, here is Jeff with the continuation of the uh, miseducation of Maria Montessori. Over to you, Jeff. Well, thanks, Jean. And this is back to an article called The Miseducation of Maria Montessori. Her method was meant to the public and it became a privilege by Jessica Winter, uh, March the 3rd uh, this year in The New Yorker. And we're just going to continue picking up what happened to her ideas about education and how they were used in what's, what's left over what's 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 happening from that so we continue the article from last week it says and what is montessori's afterlife de stefano criticizes unnamed skeptic to believe that montessori's ideas cannot be applied in schools to the masses that they work only with the children of the rich who attend private schools yet the obvious irony of montessori's crusade on behalf of the poorest and least powerful in society is that its most visible legacy is selective private schools for the elite as word of the San Lorenzo experiment travelled around Rome, two early adopters were the city's mayor and the British ambassador to Italy. 
Soon, aristocrats and diplomats were hosting Montessori's classrooms in their parlours. The first Montessori school in North America began in a Georgian mansion in Westchester in 1911 with 12 students. The six children of Frank Vanderlip, founder of the Federal Reserve, and some cousins and friends. The educator Helen Parkhurst, who trained under Montessori in Rome, went on to found the Dalton School in New York City, where tuition now tops $57,000 per year. And although Montessori's influence remains a salutary force in universal pre-K programs, it dims abruptly in public ed kindergarten where common core standards squeeze out free play in favor of academic drills and assessments. I dread the day that my son, currently enrolled in New York City's UPK program, is forced to resign as the mayor of the block center. Today, there are only a few hundred public Montessori schools in the US. And as Myra Debs, the executive director of Yale's Education Studies Program pointed out, they tend to follow a pattern, becoming whiter and wealthier with time. The arc of Montessori's rise shared the same coordinates as that of many a visionary. As De Stefano shows, the disorienting effects of fame fostered on her dependence on sycophancy, but also a paranoid distrust even of her close acolytes. When she broke with Samuel McClure, publishing impresario who helped to promote her work in the US, a dismayed supporter observed, she seems to me to lack the faculty of knowing who her friends are. Her ardent faith in her philosophy and methods begat their popularity, but also a fear that popularity would dilute and destroy them. The longevity of the cult Montessori flows in part from her uh, the, the cult of Montessori flows in part from her extreme efforts to protect her work from contamination. She maintained a personal monopoly on the training and certifying of teachers in her method, tightly governed the distribution of Montessori texts and tools, and even sought patents for her minor variations on objects as familiar as block letters or an abacus. Of course, what she was attempting to control was a stake in her own intellectual property. Around the age of 40, as her schools continued to prol proliferate, and demand for her training grew, Montessori resigned from her position at the University of Rome, hoping to focus entirely on her burgeoning educational movement. From now on, Kramer wrote, she would support herself and her dependents on the proceeds of her training courses and the royalties from her books and didactic materials, a situation which lent her activities a certain commercial aspect they would not have had if she had remained a salaried academic propounding her ideas in an academic framework. Financial incentives, in other words, made it more likely that Montessori's project, a mating of altruism and scientific inquiry, born in asylums and slums, would become transactional and exclusive. Her growing celebrity, meanwhile, ensured that she would drift out of the pedagogical laboratories of tenement schools and into the drawing rooms of her upper crust benefactors. The Montessori method routed, routed disproportionately to rich white kids because good things do but also because she increasingly viewed her project as, in Kramer's words, a patentable business. The method was not only something to be taught, it was something to be sold. Selling it involved not only an idealised version of the vision of the child, but an idealised expectation of the setting in which a child should be educated. A devout but anti-clerical Catholic, Montessori lamented the view that her pedagogy shaped a, a, a child in some societal societally preferred mould, rather than creating pathways for the child's own strengths bestowed on, the, bestowed on them by the creator to emerge. In these prodigious manifestations of the soul of the child, too much was seen as the product of an educational method, she wrote. What slipped down to the common schools was a freer way of studying and of giving individual and objective tasks. The miracle was officially forgotten. The trickle-down economy that Montessori described here was perhaps inevitable for an educational model with such a high bar for access in terms of training, materials and funding, but this was her own doing. Her contempt was for the common schools themselves, of course, but not for the students in them. But then again, contempt is structural. Contempt can also resemble philanthropy. In 2018, Jeff Bezos, the richest former Montessori pupil in the world, announced that he was putting $2 billion into his day one fund, dedicated in part to establishing a network of high quality, full scholarship Montessori inspired preschools. The project has opened five schools in Washington since 2020, with plans to expand into Florida and Texas this year. Bezos's vow 
prompted some early childhood education experts, including Myra Debs of Yale and Joel Ryan, the executive director of Washington's Head Start program, to ask why a man possessed of $200 billion would elect to compete with existing cash-strapped public preschool programs instead of simply giving them lots of money. The answer may be found on the Day One Fund website, which states the customer set this team of missionaries will serve is simple. The children in un underserved communities across the country. There is a novel dystopian horror in this promise. It conjures an image of Jesuit monkey preschool teachers working, walking barefoot and dehydrated across miles of Amazon warehouse floor in search of a hundred piece counting board. As elsewhere, a child waits expectantly behind her ring video doorbell, anxious to rate her experience. There's nothing new, however, about adding a veneer of religious vocation to consumer capitalism. In fact, Bezos seems typical of much of the American commentariat in viewing teachers through the same lens as an Amazon worker, invisible, essential, marginalised, at the mercy of scores on whom everything depends and everything can be blamed. If Bezos can re recast child-centred pedagogy as a form of customer service, then perhaps the ever-prophetic Montessori foresaw that too. She said, we teachers can only help the work going on, she wrote, as servants wait upon a master. And that says so much about the now, uh, that's the end of the article. It says so much about uh, how private schools see students as, uh, as customers, as um, products, uh, commercialising uh, children. Uh, anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, that was very interesting, Jeff. And, of course, uh, it's always interesting to teachers and educators to hear how a good idea, a really, really good educational idea was worked out by teachers who were teaching poor children, uh, not the children of the insecure middle class or the wealthy. And then uh, what was uh, worked out becomes the uh, privilege of the wealthy few. Sad, isn't it? But um, we're going to come now to the best part of the program, our great state school. Over to you, Maddie. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. This week's great state school is Wallen Secondary College. Congratulations, Wallen Secondary College. Wallen Secondary College opened its doors in 2006. Through community investment, the college continued to grow, adding a year level each year until a full seven to 12 enrollment was reached in 2011. And this is from the Wallen Secondary College website. It's a little bit of a statement. In 2021, our commitment and vision for Wallen Secondary College is to create a positive learning environment whereby every learning opportunity to shape our students' future through high quality, values-enriched teaching and learning is maximised. Student excellence is fostered by the support and involvement of our learning community. The school community working together to ensure every child has a positive, happy and rewarding school experience. Parents and teachers being genuine partners in the learning process, ensuring students are encouraged to participate, to strive and achieve their best, to be considerate and supportive of others and to value the pursuit of knowledge. Our values listed below strongly influence our pursuit of a dynamic learning culture that promotes integrity, innovation and the individual. And they are respect, responsibility and resilience. Education is one of the most important aspects of growth and development, providing students with the fundamental tools necessary to move forward in society as confident, knowledgeable citizens. Education is the means by which we ensure that our society continues to successfully evolve and it is incumbent upon us as educators to continue to explore and develop new and innovative ways to assist our students to develop the skills and capabilities to thrive in a rapidly changing and interconnected world. 
I warmly welcome you to gain an insight into our wonderful students, our dynamic school, and observe the vibrancy and strength of our wider Wallen Secondary College community by arranging a visit. Um, and that was a principal's comment by Michael Ritchie, the principal. I'm going to throw some facts and figures at you now from the Akara My School website. There are 672 students enrolled at Wallen Secondary College. The ICSIO value is well below average at 968. In the upper quartile of parental income, there is 4%. In the second quartile, there is 17%. In the third quartile, there is 31%. And in the lowest quartile, there is 47%. With 22% speaking a language other than English and 5% Indigenous students. Now to finances. Uh, the recurrent grants, the Australian government gives them $2 million annually, the Victorian government $8.1 million. Fees and parental contributions amount to $179,000 and other private contributions are $119,000. It costs $15,705 per pupil to send a student to school and there has been $1.6 million in capital over three years. So congratulations to the community of Wallen Secondary College, the teachers and the students who are doing fantastic job. Keep going. Yes, the locals had to fight for many years to get that college there and they really value it. It's truly a community college. But um, that was our, our good news for the week and uh, we hope that you enjoyed our program and you'll be back next week on 3CR at 12 noon. If you want to find out more about the dogs, we have a website at www.adogs.info. But thanks to Dale, to Peter, to Sorrel, to Maddie, to Jeff, to Oliver and Kim. And uh, from all of us, it is bye for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.